and good evening, everybody. Welcome once again to our primetime podcast here for Sunday, February 14th in the year 2021. <laughs> yeah, I just say that year to myself and I say, you've got to be kidding me. But that being said, this is the continuing series of messages as we study why we believe what we believe. And some of this means we have to look at the history. And of course, it's through a lens of Scripture, but we have to have context. And what I found, and you've heard me talk about so much, is that most of my adult life, I knew what I believed, but the reason why I believed it is because that's what I was taught. And I didn't understand why Baptists had a certain understanding of something, and how is it different from the others? What could we learn from them? Are there things that we're missing? What are they missing? And so that's really what this whole session is about. Why do we believe what we believe? Surely we believe this for more than that's because that's what the pastor said. And I think that's the whole point of the session for the last uh, now month and a half. And we'll be continuing in this series probably up in, uh, well, it's, I've got sketched out episodes at least topics uh, out through probably middle to the end of April in this series. So I hope you're finding it interesting, and we're going to be continuing tonight because it's time for us to talk about the pushback reaction. You might say, pushback reaction? Well, yes. Remember that in the beginning we talked about uh, those branches of the Protestant Reformation, and they broke away from the Roman Catholic Church, and the first big breakaway was kind of came to a head in the year 1054, and it broke off and formed the Eastern Orthodox Church. And then, starting in the 1500s, in the early 1500s, with Martin Luther in Germany, and then a little bit after that, Ulrich Zwingli and John Calvin in, um, in Switzerland, there was a significant effort to continue this idea of reforming the Roman Catholic Church to try to correct some of its errors. And then we went and talked about, last week, what happened in England, about the beginnings of the English Reformation and the formation of what became known as the Church of England. A lot of these issues came down to the authority of the Pope, that the Roman Catholic background said, no, the Pope is not to be questioned and the idea of papal infallibility, by the way, came on later. That was not a doctrine of the earlier Catholic Church. But the point that I'm getting at is that with everything that was happening in Germany and Switzerland and as a result in Austria and then up in England and as a result in Scotland and then in the Netherlands, which we will probably touch on fairly soon here, all of these things were this Reformation movement. There was going to be some pushback against it. But you see, you had some other factors, too. It's a foreign concept to us in America to have the church and the, the government of that nation be rather intertwined. They had state churches. And by state, I really am talking about their country. And that was very much true in what today is Germany and in Switzerland and in England, the Church of England. And when you think about it, 
all those churches, those large cathedrals, they were Roman Catholic cathedrals. Remember, somebody owned them. Now they're going to leave the affiliation and they're no longer going to be Roman Catholic. They're going to be part of this new Protestant church, these reformational churches. And yet they're in a building that they don't own. And so, in other words, the economics of this starts to come into play. The leadership of the Roman Catholic Church, from the Pope to the bishops, all the way on down, is starting to say, hey, wait a minute, this is about more than doctrine. This is about economics. That's our building. Either you have to buy it from us, or we're going to evict you from using our building. And it was about power, because those monarchs, those kings in those nations, all wanted to do their own thing. They didn't want to listen to what the Pope told them. We talked a fair amount last week about how in England, that was not the only thing, but it was a significant factor that King Henry VIII wanted to have his marriage annulled so that he could remarry. So many different things came into play in addition to the doctrinal differences. We've tended to talk primarily about the doctrinal differences, including the basis of salvation. The Roman Catholic teaching was that salvation is through the grace of God, the atoning death of Christ on the cross, the receiving and taking of all of the sacraments of the church, and the traditions of the church through good works that perhaps have been inspired by grace, but nonetheless are good works. And there was always a question of whether your salvation was complete or whether you could still fall away. And that was what the Roman Catholic Church had become. Luther comes along in 1517 and in the decade or so after that to which he says, No, Scripture says that we're saved by grace alone through faith alone, based on the teaching of Scripture alone. But obviously, with all of these things going on and all the upheaval that this was creating throughout Europe and throughout England, sooner or later the Catholic Church was going to push back and say, we've got to respond to this. And they did in the way that they often did. They formed a council to study this, and even if it took them 15 years or more to come up with all their recommendations, that's what the council was going to do. And they would meet periodically during that time period. Just like the Council of Nicaea that produced the Nicene Creed some thousand years earlier, well, more than that, 1,200 years earlier, and the Council of Trent was the first major response of the Roman Catholic Church to the Protestant Reformation. Now, how does this affect our, our faith as Baptists, who identify as born-again believing Christians here in the 21st century? Well, it affects us because a number of things that the Protestant Reformation uh, was based on, we would applaud. Uh, most of the complaints that Baptists have had about Luther and Calvin primarily in the Protestant Reformation is that they just didn't go far enough. But the Roman Catholic Church said, no, you've gone way too far. We've got to nip this in the bud before it gets out of control. And so they formed this council to meet in the city of Trento in northern Italy. And it really embodied what was called the Counter-Reformation. And the council issued different condemning statements of what it defined to be the heresies committed by the Protestant movement. 
but it also issued some key statements and clarifications of the church's doctrine and teachings, by the church I mean the Catholic Church's teaching, including its views on scripture, which books were in the biblical canon, the matter of sacred tradition, their understanding of original sin, their understanding of salvation, their understanding of justification, of the sacraments, and then things that are distinctively Roman Catholic, the Mass and their process of the veneration of saints. Now that Council of Trent met 25 different times during December 1545 and December 1563. Some of the things that I always found just kind of interesting is that when I first heard about this Council of Trent, actually was not in theological studies. It was when I was an undergraduate at Central Michigan and I took my first music history class because the Council of Trent had some significant influences on music. You might say, how can that be? Well, at the time, in the 1500s and then in the early 1600s, all the great composers and therefore all the masterworks of that era, that late Renaissance and then that early Baroque era, those composers obviously had to go and work, they had to make a living, and if they wanted to make it composing new music, they had to be somewhere where they were working for someone who had money. Who had all the money? The Catholic Church did. And so as a result, most of those masterworks, choral masterworks and instrumental masterworks of the second half of the 1500s and really all the way up until the end of the 1700s, were composers that either worked for a monarch or for the church. And so there were some significant things that the Council of Trent spoke of regarding music. That being said, I'm not going to go in any depth on that today because that's not the purpose of this. But so what were the things that it, that it did, particularly as it relates to pushing back on the Protestant Reformation? And each of these things, therefore, have some connection to us today. So let's take a look at this. Um, the main objectives of that council, there were two of them. One is to openly condemn the doctrines and even the principles of the Protestant movement. It's true that the, the emperors, you know, the local leaders, intended this event to be a, a general or a, a ecumenical council, they called it, and they wanted the Protestants to have a fair hearing at it. But during the council's second set of meetings in 1551 and, and after, an invocation, invitation, not invocation, twice given to the Protestants uh, to appear, but they denied them a vote. Some individuals, including a man named Philip Melanchthon, who was Martin Luther's kind of second lieutenant and successor, they started their journey to Trent but they got no further than a city named Nuremberg. And as a result, the, the refusal to even give the Protestants a seat at the table was one of the things that made the, the division between them even worse. So Trent became not to try to discuss and engage the Protestant teachings, but to basically just stomp on them and tell them, no, absolutely not. And then the the second per a second reason is to affect a reformation in you might say discipline and administration. The idea is that they were increasing the idea of church discipline, 
The Roman Catholic Church had practiced very stern discipline on its leaders for years to ensure compliance and consistency. They didn't believe in local church autonomy. It was one church, and all the power was at the top. That's a totally foreign concept to us as Baptists. When it comes to Scripture, what it came down to is that the church, meaning the church's hierarchy, was the ultimate interpreter of Scripture. The Bible and church tradition, the tradition that posed part of the Catholic faith, were now to be equally authoritative. And in the last couple hundred years, well, the Roman Catholic Church would say this is not a fair statement. It would appear to us that when church tradition and scripture appear to be in conflict, church tradition is given the priority. Ironically, of course, there are some Baptist churches that fall into that same situation, but that should never be the case, but it nonetheless does happen. Now, one of the other things that Trent sought to address was this relationship between faith and works in salvation. We would say works come out of a saving faith. And that was part of Martin Luther's statement of justification by faith alone. The Roman Catholic Church does not accept that. And there were other things that Trent sought to uh, clarify, including things that were distinctively Catholic, like saints and relics and their stance on the Virgin Mary and all of these things. But there were certain decrees that they passed to help better understand their teaching on what was happening in the sacraments. Transubstantiation in the, uh, the Lord's Supper of how the bread and the cup become the body and the blood of Christ in the Catholic teaching. The Protestant teaching would say, no, they either represent the body and blood of Christ or the body and the blood of Christ are present within, but they don't become. That really is the Lutheran view. So there were so many different things there, so big a differences, but a lot of it was about power, who gets to say what's what, but there was another one, and that was the definition of Scripture. What is in Scripture? What is in the canon of Scripture was the term that was used. For years, there were other books, other writings, that were referred to a lot in teaching, but it wasn't all that clarified whether they were part of the canon of Scripture. Along comes the Protestant Reformation and the Protestant Bible, is the same as, as our Bible. And as I said last week, the King James Version, originally released in 1611, was not only distinctively English, but it was distinctively and very definitely Protestant. It was very Church of England. The apocryphal books, the books that are in the Catholic Bible but are not in ours. Most of us are not familiar with these, to be honest with you, I've never had any in-depth study in them. They are historical writings, but we don't believe them to be inspired writings. By that I mean they certainly are the observations of the men who wrote them, of things at that time, and they do shed some light on certain things, but they don't have the authority of the books that are in the canon of Scripture because they can't pass the tests that we've given them to determine whether they were divinely inspired and preserved. 
But at the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church, among many other things, said those apocryphal writings, those apocryphal books, we're going to make those part of the canon of Scripture because, among other things, they do those books do tend to be more supportive of some Catholic doctrines, such as prayers for the dead, such as purgatory, the Catholic doctrine of a, of a temporary place of additional cleansing, additional purification after one's death before they're, until they're ready to really stand before God. These are troubling doctrines to us, but they were troubling to Martin Luther. Remember, one of the straws that broke the camel's back was the sale of indulgences, and a man named Johann Tetzel, who would travel around Europe selling indulgences, selling a piece of paper to these peasants who would use very hard-earned money, and they didn't have much of it, and they would use that money give it to the church and be given a piece of paper that says, you have purchased 500 years worth of early release of your father or your mother from purgatory. Now, they didn't tell you when you would get out. They would just say that it'll be 500 years earlier. And you might say, where in the world did they come up with a, a basis for that? Well, the reasoning went something like this, that there are people who have lived over the history those who we refer to as saints, whether they be the, the biblical saints or those who have been named as saints by the Catholic Church over the years, in which their good so far outweighed their bad, there is an abundance of, of good, an abundance of grace that is sitting in a bank, basically, and can be borrowed against in order to purchase early release for their family members who have died and therefore are in purgatory. It was... It was just an unbelievable scam, is what we would say. And the purpose of it is Tetzel was raising money for the building that today we know St. Peter's Basilica at the Vatican in Rome. He even had a saying, Tetzel had a saying. As he drove around, he said, Every time a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. And so the Council of Trent said these apocryphal books belong in the canon of Scripture because they happen to support some of those Catholic doctrines. There were just so many things about it that were really troubling. I guess what I'm getting at is that the Catholic Church just said, we're not going to just take this. We're going to push back. Because remember, there was about doctrine, but it was about power. And there were some heavy economic implications of it, including, what, at that cathedral in your town? That's a nice building, isn't it? And you're not going to be a part of us anymore? Well, I guess we can't make you stay a part of us, but now you're in our building. Either get out or buy it from us. One of the two. And the early Protestant movement probably didn't have a whole lot of money because the Catholic Church had the market cornered on it. And then the third factor was the kings and the queens, you know, the monarchs in all of those countries that were somewhat entwined with the Catholic Church, and yet they had tension with them too. And it kind of came to a head in England with King Henry VIII, as I had talked about a week ago. These things are so foreign to us. As local autonomous churches, the only interconnection that we have with other churches is through people we know and probably as pastors get to know one another. It's like myself and my relationship with the other pastors here in town. There's two pastoral groups. 
There's one that's the pastors of the more mainline churches. These are nice enough folks. I enjoy talking with them. I have lunch with them when their groups meet every now and then. Um, but we just don't have all that much in common uh, because their understanding of Scripture is a different understanding. I'm not going to say that they're not saved because only God knows their hearts. and I suspect, actually, that most of them are. But they definitely have a heavier emphasis on what we would call the social gospel. And we can learn something from them about that because Baptists in the last half of the 20th century have probably short, shorted that aspect of the love of Christ a little too much. But they have turned repentance into that as a form of good works. Now the Catholic Church has taken the approach in the last 50 or 60 years that has tried to come a little closer to Protestantism while still maintaining Catholic doctrines. All of these different groups, whether they be the Catholics or the Lutherans or the Church of England or the Reformed churches with their roots in Switzerland or the Baptists, or all of the American incarnations of those groups that got their start over in Europe or in the British Isles, like the Presbyterians up in Scotland. All of those things believe what they do because they have seen Scripture through their own lens. You hear me use that term a lot. Let me, um, let me give you an example of this. Let's say you're looking at a table and you've got a, a napkin there, and the napkin is white. You know that it's white because that's typically the color of napkins, but it's more than that. When you look at it, you can see that it's white. But your friend sitting across from you, um, it was a bright sunny day, and they didn't take their sunglasses off, and they still have their sunglasses on. These are the really dark kind of green sunglasses. And they look at the napkin, and they say, it's not white. That napkin is sort of a kind of a green. What are you talking about? It's not white. And try to tell him, or her that it's not white because it looks that way to them because their sunglasses have tinted what they're seeing. Think of that in terms of our emotions. Think of that in terms of our minds. Our understanding tints the data that we have coming at us, the information we have coming at us. The Roman Catholics read the Bible through a Catholic lens. They work through a presumption and then they read scripture through the lens of that presumption. You might say, well, I never understood the thing with the Catholics and Mary. Well, I'm not defending it, but consider this. Who is Jesus? You say, son of God. Fully God and fully man, okay? And we would agree with the Catholics on that. In fact, we can thank them for having defended that doctrine so vehemently when it was challenged back in the 3rd and 4th centuries. But... Since Jesus is fully God and fully man, who is Jesus' mother? You say, well, Mary. Okay, and who is Jesus again? Jesus is God in human form. Therefore, Mary is mother of God. And the Catholics came down so hard and so strong on the doctrine of Jesus as fully God that there was almost no way around it. Mary is therefore the mother of God. And we would say... Mary is the mother of the human Jesus. Mary is not the mother of the fully God Jesus. Catholics would say you are bifurcating 
Jesus. And we would say, oh, come on now. <laughs> but you get into things here where you read it through your own lens. Baptists do this if we aren't careful. And you've heard me talk about it a lot. The reason why we believe what we believe so often is because it's what we were taught. But if we don't know the history, and we don't know what some of the other beliefs have been, we're not only going to misrepresent their beliefs, which we don't like it when they misrepresent ours, but at the same time, we never mature in our faith and in our understanding. We may be 60, 70, 80 years old, but our understanding of theology is still a child's understanding. It is true the Bible says that we come to faith, to a saving faith as a child. I don't see anywhere where it says we stay there. Yes, it warns about getting too puffed up in our knowledge, but it never says, therefore, all knowledge is bad. You see, there's, there's an important balance with this. And most of the time on our side of the equation, I think we're too thin. I think many Baptist churches teach a theology that is about an inch deep. And as a result, we don't know why we believe what we believe. When we have a little more understanding of this history about what happened after Jesus ascends and the apostles take over, and then you have a couple hundred years there, some serious persecution of the early church, then the Roman Emperor Constantine claims to convert to Christianity and the early established church, organized church, I guess is a better term, becomes the Roman Catholic Church. And I've talked about how there are certain things we should be grateful for them, particularly preserving the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of Jesus is fully God, fully man. But then with that much power in one place, combined with its struggles and alliances with kings and queens, you know, the governments of those nations, things are going to happen that you end up with some unusual doctrines and you set up one person, a pope, in charge of it to make those decisions and place them above reproach and discussion, you're going to have problems. Every local Baptist church that has given their pastor too high of a pedestal is going to run into problems. They become like a local Baptist pope. And so those problems resulted in the East-West split in 1054, and they resulted in the Protestant Reformation because of the excesses and some of the atrocities committed by the Roman Catholic Church in the particularly 12th, 13th, 14th centuries, 15th century. And then it resulted in that Reformation spreading up to England and Scotland, and as I said, the Netherlands, which we will talk about. And then the Roman Catholics pushed back. And then the British pushed back too. Resistance to the Church of England, which wasn't reformed enough. And that's where you end up with, among other things, the early settlers coming to America for religious freedom. Puritans and the pilgrims. Remember that? So we're going to talk about that in the weeks to come. We're going to understand a little more about how these things start to influence the early settlers here in America. And they're all part of not only why they believed what they believed, but why we believe what we believe. I hope you find this interesting. Let's close in prayer. Lord, thank you for the amazing power of technology, like a private radio station, to anybody who would listen. I ask that these messages help clarify for all of us why we believe what we believe, and how magnificently you have not only preserved your word, but you've preserved the Christian faith, so that people 
throughout the world have come to know you as their Savior. We thank you and we praise you for all that you have done and for all that you are. Be with us as we go about our week. Draw us close to you and help us, Lord, to always ponder why do we believe what we believe, but to give thanks for the fact that we believe it because your Holy Spirit has taught us it. We ask this, Lord, in your name. Amen. Thank you, everybody. God bless you for joining us tonight. Have a great week.